school closures, I mean, it's still probably one of those nightmarish memories a lot of parents don't want to revisit because everybody assumes, I think, not everybody, because maybe you were in the special circumstances I'm about to cite, but a lot of people assumed, especially the decision makers, that every kid has their own bedroom, every kid has their own computer, every kid would be in one room or another in the house with complete and utter control over their environment, and they'd be able to focus on their online studies. And then you get to people who live in a tower and have three kids in one bedroom in bunk beds, and and they can't afford the computer. And it was a complete and utter nightmare for people of any strata, to be perfectly honest, because you had to figure out, I guess, I gotta be home with the kids. And now a new study concludes that maybe we overdid the whole thing. I'm not gonna characterize it in any other way because the lead author of that study joins me right now, uh, Professor Sarah Neil Stremko. Good morning, it's nice to have you. Good morning. Thanks for having me this morning. Okay, so I'll let you speak to the actual conclusions of of this study, because if I understand correctly, it's a meta study. It brings together a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's a, um, a we call it a review um, or a systematic review of studies. So this paper really is um, the culmination of three years of work by our team at the National Collaborating Center for Methods and Tools uh, and McMaster University. And we began in early on in the pandemic in April and May 2020, where public health decision makers really had important questions about how to safely reopen schools and daycares and how to operate them safely. Um, understandable measures were put down uh, when COVID was declared uh, a global pandemic to really curb the spread of the virus. And, and as we move forward, there was so much we didn't know. Um, we were really relying on information from other infectious diseases. And we know that COVID behaved much differently than previous um, viruses. We were relying on studies that looked at transmission in schools and daycares before those stay-at-home orders were put in place. Um, but as time evolved and our team continued to update the review, um, and that meant looking across the, the uh, literature to see what had been published, pulling all of those studies that had been conducted together, uh, appraising them so we knew which ones were the highest quality and had the most trustworthy information and then synthesizing them together. So as time went on, we were able to include data from places like Australia, which opened uh, schools before North America because they're on a different school schedule. Um, and as time went on, things changed in, in the context of the pandemic. Uh, we had variants of concern come up, become more prevalent. Uh, vaccinations came into play. So really, this kind of speaks to the importance of, of not only research and science in, in studying what was going on within schools in different jurisdictions as the pandemic evolved, but also supporting what we call evidence synthesis or the, the meta review, um, where we can look to teams like ours, and there's others at McMaster and across Canada that have expertise in finding and interpreting those studies from around the world in order to bring together an overall picture of what we knew rather than just relying on a single study at any point in time. So what we ultimately saw was after uh, those initial stay-at-home orders were put in place in, in later periods when schools were either reopened or closed um, down, it didn't appear to have much impact on community transmission. Um, and rather the patterns of transmission that we saw within schools reflected the patterns that happened in the community. Are there necessarily sort of two phases to this analysis, pre-vaccine, post-vaccine? 
Absolutely. So early on, um, so as I mentioned, we started early in 2020 and we did actually published 18 different iterations of the review. Uh, and this is sort of the culminating final version. Um, but early on, we did have a lot of studies that were, were conducted prior to vaccines. And in subsequent updates, we actually sort of put those into a different bucket and moved them sort of out of the main findings, um, still available for, for others that are interested to look at. Um, but really the context changed dramatically once vaccines were available. Patterns of transmission were different, you know, in all settings. Um, so we were really, we really had to look at that differently. And I think it really speaks to the importance of, of being nimble and being able to look at evolving research and adapting our decisions uh, as we move along and the context changes. And in your analysis, were there jurisdictions where schools never shut down? Um, actually, that, that's a good question. I, I know that Sweden was one um, that did keep younger kids in school. I think that's the only one um, at the top of mind. Okay. It's, it can be difficult to look at these different studies because oftentimes um, measures to either close or reopen schools didn't happen in a vacuum, didn't happen in isolation. They also went along with other um, public health measures that were put in place in those jurisdictions, like mandatory masking in public spaces and and uh, limits on numbers, uh, gathering numbers. So, so really what we saw that in terms of, of schools, it really also did help to have those other infection prevention and control measures in place. So vaccination made a huge difference in transmission in school settings, not surprisingly. Uh, masking was also effective. And then policies, what we call test to state policies. So that um, really became available later on in the pandemic when we had good access to testing and rapid testing. Um, so if you remember early on, if there had been a case identified within a classroom, all the students in the class were sent home for a two-week quarantine. Later on, those test-to-state policies were put into place where if a student was able to test negative, they could return to school. And so that really um, helped us to maintain similar levels of transmission. So we didn't really see increases in transmission from avoiding that quarantine period. Um, but of course, that had to, that relied on availability of testing to be in place. So again, something that couldn't have happened in those first early phases, um, but was able to be really effective as time went on. And another important measure would be, was your analysis about kids getting COVID or kids being vectors for COVID? Because one of the big concerns was a lot of kids live in multi-generational homes. So the kid's not sick, but they're carrying COVID and they give it to grandma. Absolutely. So we did, we looked at sort of two categories of studies. One that was looking at um, the impact of those measures that were in place within the school settings. And then we also looked at studies that looked at sort of that more global community level transmission. Um, so in places where schools were either opened or closed or looking at patterns over time as they reopened and closed. Uh, and we looked at what happened in the community overall. And so generally what we saw is very little difference in sort of community level transmission uh, within those settings. And really that those patterns mirrored what was going on in the communities already. So oftentimes in studies that looked at uh, cases within schools and where did those cases originate, in the vast majority, they were originating outside of the school setting. So does this mean we got it wrong? Well, I don't know that we could say that we got it wrong. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. I think uh, at time, particularly in those very early phases, we were really working blind. We had no information um, and we didn't understand the way the virus was transmitted. We didn't have access to testing, access to vaccinations. So I think those early on decisions, um, you know, we had to do what made what, what we could have anticipated at the time. And later time points, I think as, as sort of the um, jurisdictional decisions became more varied, 
there probably were, um, in retrospect, some some places where schools could have been kept open um, more safely and and reduced some of that need. And you know, we saw across the country huge variations in in um, the way things were done. So in Ontario, was at one of the highest uh, number of days of school closures, where in places like British Columbia, uh, schools reopened and stayed open much earlier. So um, you know, I think we have to think about those patterns of decision making as time uh, went on and as more information became available. And then just thinking to the future, and if, if this were to happen again, um, making sure that we have a system in place for robust data collection within the Canadian context so that we can make those informed decisions um, based on the information that we have available. Thanks so much for this, it's fascinating. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Dr. Sarah Neil Stramko, assistant professor at McMaster University. Going to be interesting to see if there's any reaction today from the provincial government or from the education minister, because I think the the good doctor is right that we did what we did at the time with what we knew and what we had in hand. And when she says now we're going to be ready for the next time, please no. <laughs> <laughs>